Uh, if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you, I want you to turn to me, uh, turn with me uh, to the gospel of, uh, to the gospel. See if I can speak this morning. To 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Last week we talked about and, and preached on chapter 4. And in that uh, chapter, uh, we talked about this transformation from the life we have today to the new life that Christ will bring at his, at his second coming. And that transformation carries on into chapter 5. So we're going to talk about that as well in chapter 5. But Paul's going to do something different than uh, this week than what he did last week. He's going to talk about uh, life as a contrast. And, and here's something that I really uh, I, I harp on in the local associational meetings that our, our belief has to match what the scriptures say. So I want you to notice the contrast here. set up a contrast that talks about the earthly tents that are being torn down, but simultaneously God is building an eternal house for you and me. And he's going to start listing out these contrasts so much so that he's going to talk about what we know and how we live. Are we living a life that is a contrast to those that are perishing? And so it's important that as we look at this scripture, that we note those contrasts. As we read this passage, you're going to hear those contrasts. And, and that is talking about a life that what we know from the study of the scriptures leads and informs how we live. Leads and informs our walk with Christ. And so he's going to draw up a number of contrasts here. We need to make sure we pick up on the terms that he's using here. Earthly tents is a reference to this life. The eternal houses are the life to come that God's building. He's going to talk about it's not built with man's hands. What he's saying is it, it's a life that's built by God. Amen. It's a life that he gives us because we've turned to him and because he loves us. So let's take a look here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 verses. Here's what Paul writes. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch, we inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, also a down payment. I think Mia talked about it as a deposit. But we're going to talk about that term in this sermon. 
Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are, uh, we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed. That's another term for being repaid for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He talks about this standing before God and this judgment seat, but we're going to point out how why this is an encouragement. The mere fact that God comes and says, I give you the Holy Spirit, and that's a down payment, that means that you and I have a life, and when we stand before God, that he's expecting an optimistic outcome. He's expecting that we will stand before him. Why? Because he has given us his spirit. And he's given us this spirit as a down payment of a greater life to come than what we would have here in mortal life. Last week, we discussed the transformation from our mortal bodies to our heavenly bodies from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But this transformation that Paul was talking about in chapter 4 continues on into chapter 5. So let's begin today's sermon by grasping the setting of life in the ancient world. Now I want to tell you something. I've got some stats here. These, this is not opinion. This is directly from a find, a discovery that they found in ancient Rome. These stats date to the first century. First century in Rome. And they are staggering. We have a tendency sometimes to romanticize the ancient world and say, oh, well, it's a slower pace, an easier time. Make no mistake, life in the ancient world was terrible. It was terrible. These stats that are facts that we found, they, they actually uncovered a cache of, of uh, birth certificates death certificates of those same people so we know how long they lived and it wasn't just a handful it was thousands so this is information directly from first century Rome look at these staggering statistics look at the death rate here about one-third of the infants who survived the first year of life were dead by the age of six of those who did survive nearly 60 percent were dead by age 16 by age 35, the majority suffered from internal parasites, their teeth were rotted, and they were blind. Here's a, a, a comment I thought was fascinating. There is some debate about exactly how old Jesus was. Was he 32? Was he 33? We're not sure exactly. But here's this, a comment straight from this data. If Jesus reached the age of 32, he would have been older than 80% of his listeners who were looking at a decade or less of life expectancy. So for us to look back at the ancient world and say, boy, it was just an easier time. The good days, the good old days, those are today. We have modern medicines, we have penicillin, we have things that uh, help our life. But the ancient world 
by factual evidence shows that it was a horrific time to live. Uh, many people today don't like talking about heaven because in North America, life is so good. We've got it so easy compared to some of these other countries. But in the ancient world, life was extremely difficult. So it's not hard to see that life in heaven was far greater than what they had in the ancient world. Nonetheless, what I would argue is that even today, as good as life is in America, the new life will easily better this life that we have today. The new life that Jesus promises will be so much better. And we get a glimpse of what that life is going to be like in this passage. Something else I want you to notice is that mortal life in these opening verses is being contrasted with eternal life. I've already talked about, look at the contrast between an earthly tent and an eternal home. So he's talking about mortal life today being contrasted by the eternal home. Here's some other contrasts. In verse 1, Paul describes this mortal life as being torn down while we wait on eternal life in heaven. Notice the difference here. The, the mortal tent that he's talking about is torn down, so it's temporal, right? By contrast, we have an eternal home that no one ever takes away with, from us. So a life that never ends and no one can ever take it from us. Verse 2, he says, We groan in mortal life, yet we long to be clothed in heavenly righteousness. For those of us who look beyond just the struggles that we have in everyday life and we look to a life that is coming, our hopes, our folks, and I don't mean a hope as in, well, I hope it's like that. The idea here is that we have to focus on the fact that we have a new life coming that is so much better than what this life offers. Verse 4, while we are groaning, we long that this mortal life might be swallowed up by eternal life. So we long for that day. We look forward to that day. And this is why Paul says if we're focusing on worldly things, that we're, we're just missing the point here. We've got to look beyond the worldly possessions. We've got to look beyond the life that this mortal life offers us and look and focus on the eternal life that God brings us when Jesus appears at his second coming. This idea of longing for new life that Jesus brings believers is even supported by grammar. So we looked at concepts here. Let me show you some grammar of how the grammar itself is, is showing a, a contrast here. First, the verb that's translated in verse 1 as we know, it's used in a perfect tense. Let me remind you of what a perfect tense is like and what it describes in, in Greek. A Greek perfect tense describes a past action that has lasting consequences. Now look at this last point here. Because they're describing a past action, the fact that, Christ, that Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus. And that meeting point has lasting consequences. Now Paul has an eternal body, right? Not a resurrected body. He lives in this intermediate state until our glorified bodies are given to him. But he says, I'm absent from the body, so I'm with the Lord. And so he is in the presence of God himself. And look at how he, this, this term we know actually shows that contrast. Uh, we know means more than simply having information about something. 
Paul knows about the resurrected body because of his encounters with the resurrected Christ. So on the road to Damascus, he meets him. And it changes the course of Paul's life, right? From that point on, here's a man. Now, look, I don't, I don't buy that it happened all at once. I do advocate that if you know the history of Paul, he goes away for 10 years to Arabia. And it's during that time that he says Jesus himself was teaching and so he comes to this knowledge, this, un this saving knowledge of Christ and the greatness of what he has accomplished. And he shows him and teaches him there's a new life, a better life that's coming for those who trust in Christ. And that Damascus Road experience was merely the starting point for you. It's, it's, I would equate uh, kind of the, the equal to the profession of faith and the decision that we make to turn to Christ. Maybe we didn't have a flashing light where everybody falls to the ground and Jesus verbally speaks to us, right? But it's a starting point. And for Paul, this was a starting point. You and I had a starting point as well. There's one other grammatical aspect we need to make note of here, and it deals with this concept of this mortal life groaning about the burden that, of being weighed down. Let's take a look here at verse 4. Let me read that to you. Flip back over. Uh, he says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, talking about mortal life, we groan, being burdened. We're going to talk about that term. Being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. There's two terms that we need to look at here. The first is this term for groaning. It's a Greek term, stenadzo. It's a present tense verb, so it conveys the idea of an ongoing groaning, that our body groans continually, yearning for this new life. The other one is translated, the NASB translates this verb as burdened. It's a Greek word, bareo. It also is present tense. So here's the way, uh, but I would argue, and, and commentators, and this is not idea unique to me, but commentators say this in their commentaries. Instead of seeing it as translated as burden, think of it as being weighed down. That sin weighs this body down. And here's the analogy they gave in one of the commentaries that I, I uh, used. He says, just as a, a weightlifter heaves the weight over his head. And when he, you know those weightlifters that pick up that weight and they do it like this, right? So when they pull it up and they heave that weight up, you hear them groan, right? And he's saying that's what our body does. Just as a weightlifter heaves the weight over his head and groans so our body's grown from being weighed down with sin. So they're talking about sin as this burden, but it weighs the body down. Uh, I hesitate to bring this up, but I, I just want to, I had a friend that's younger than I am, still around, good guy, Christian guy, had a heart attack, and they brought him into the ER, and while he was uh, in the ER, he coded, he died. Took him a few minutes to uh, revive him, but they zapped him, and I, I asked him, his name's Scott, I asked him, that's who uh, the Christmas party I was at, it was his Christmas party. And I asked him a few years ago, I said, do you remember anything about that? He goes, I remember everything about that. I said, tell me what happened. Tell me what you remember. 
He says, well, I remember laying on the uh, table and I remember doctors and nurses working on me real quickly. They're, they're talking, the doctor was yelling and yelling. And he says, then I remember this sense of freedom. He says, I've never felt this good. And it was like this, this body that I was in was just weighing me down. His terms, not mine. It was just weighing me down and I could see myself laying on that table and the doctors and nurses working over me. And all of a sudden, wham! Uh, the wham was that they put the paddles to him and they zapped him and they got his heart beating again. And he says, suddenly I felt that weight again and I was back looking up at him. That's the concept that we have in that mind. He has this sense that he's free from all of the sin that just weighs us down. I thought it was an interesting analogy that these guys are describing here and how easily it fit into Scott's uh, crisis. Nonetheless, these two verbs, groaning and being weighed down, are present tense verbs, so they convey the idea of an ongoing uh, uh, groaning, that we are groaning for this new life, this new body that, God, that Christ is going to bring us, because we are weighed down every day with the weight of sin in this body. So think about now the contrast. We live in a body, and because we're fallen people, because we've all capitulated to sin and given into it, now we're weighed down with that sin. But the new body, this glorified body that'll live forever, is completely free of sin. So this concept of sin weighing us down will never be the new life. Again, it, it contrasts the old life, and it shows us that the new life, regardless of how good we have it in America, is way better than what we have today. But in spite of all this groaning that is taking place, Paul says that believing Christians should be encouraged. Let's take a look here at this idea of why we should be encouraged. He's going to give us some terms here, and we're going to talk about these things. In verse 5, the NASB translates this noun for pledge, arabon. That's the Greek term. But a better translation than pledge is this concept of down payment. Here's why. Again, I wish I could take credit for this. This, I, this analogy comes straight from a commentary. Just as a down payment is part of a larger sum that will come later, so God's giving believers the Spirit as a down payment to a part of a larger promise that includes glorified bodies that comes later when Jesus returns. So the idea here that he gives us the spirit as a form of down payment, and that means there are greater things to come. So while Christian believers stand before a holy God, we give an account of our life. The fact that he has given us his down payment, his spirit that lives in us now, means that he's expecting a good outcome when we stand before him because he's given us that hope, that encouragement. Does that make sense to you? So one of the commentators made this comment. I thought it was interesting. He says, we need to recognize that when believers stand before this holy God, no doubt we'll give an account of our life, but the judgment is more along the lines of, for believers as like uh, athletes standing before judges at the Olympics where we're graded 
on, the th on how we live this life, good or bad. But it's not about that the bad aren't when you're going to hell. Uh, he's expecting an optimistic outcome. He's expecting a good outcome because he has given us this down payment. So it's an important concept that we need to recognize here. So let's connect the dots. So while our mortal bodies groan, we long to be clothed in heavenly righteousness. Secondly, Paul teaches that God gave us the spirit as a down payment on a glorified body that comes when Jesus returns. So God's giving us the spirit as a type of first fruits for greater things to come. Uh, there's a New Testament scholar that I've read a number of his books. His name is Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. He is the Bishop of Durham in England. He's an Anglican priest. And he says that our mortal bodies, he sees this as what he calls mere shadows as our future self. So he says this mortal life that we think is, well, it's the physical life. He says there is a better physical life on the other side of heaven. And he says the life we live today is a mere shadow compared to what that life is about. As a result, Paul says we are to be of good courage in knowing that there are better things to come than what this life offers. This leads us to the main point. I don't want you to miss that. While, modern, while life in modern times has improved greatly from the times of the ancient world, humanity continues to be weighed down by sin. Christian believers groan and long to be clothed in the righteousness that Jesus will bring at his return. And therefore, God encourages his people by giving us his Holy Spirit as a down payment to a far greater life to come. So we need to start thinking about these types of concepts because what Paul is going to do now is talking about what we know and what we know informs the way that we live. Does our living reflect what the Bible says? We have to make sure that our understanding of God informs the way that we live. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. So with these ideas in mind, let's take a look at three points, and they're going to appear in the form of a question. Here's the first one. Does our knowledge and understanding of the Bible reflect Paul's teaching of a transformed life that leads to redemption? Let's take a look here at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let's take a look at some symbolism in this first verse so that we can come to grips with what he's saying in this passage. First, the earthly tent, we've already mentioned this. In verse 1, refers to the believer's mortal body, that will eventually be torn down. Paul talks about it becoming corrupt. That's another way of saying it's going to be torn down, meaning that we're going to grow old and we're going to die. Interesting term here that he's using here for this earth, uh, earthly tent is stenos. It's a noun form of the word stenato, which is typically translated as tabernacle. Okay? Think about this. Is this, used, this term is used all through the Old Testament. Remember the... the Israelites are constantly building and, and carrying this tabernacle around in the Old Testament, right? This is the dwelling place of God. So he says when 
this earthly mortal life dies, this tabernacle will be torn down and a new life will be given that's an eternal life. So you have a temporary life that's coming to an end and an eternal life that is waiting for us. Uh, after death, uh, however, a new house, uh, it's a Greek word here, oikos, not made by human hands or humanity. In other words, God is the one who makes it, that is built in heaven. So notice the contrast here. A temporary life, that's earthly tent, and we have an eternal life here, uh, the new house, oikos. So he's showing a contrast here between the life we have today and this better life that is waiting when Christ returns. All of this symbolism points to a resurrection and a transformation into becoming part of a new heaven and a new earth. We oftentimes forget because we have a tendency to think that salvation is only about humanity, but the world is transformed as well and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and it's new in the sense that it is redeemed just like humanity is redeemed. So don't think that God's going to whisk us away to some other planet. What he does is he re redeems the world, meaning that he does for the world what he does for our fallen bodies. He, he redeems the world. If God created the heavens and the earth to begin with and pronounced it as good in the creation account, and then we bring sin into the world and it affects the creation, then his concept of redeeming the world as well fits right into this idea of redeeming humanity at the same time. Something else we need to be made aware of in these contrasting patterns here, and that is the verb that we talked about earlier, we know. If you look at this verb in the Greek, we know, it's a first person plural. Notice, we know. And it sets up a contrast to what believers know as opposed to what unbelievers know. You see that contrast? If we know what we know from Scripture, then it's contrasting what unbelievers know. So look at the ideas here. The verb translated we know is a first-person plural verb that draws a contrast from what believers know to what unbelievers know. Here's the questions now. Does our understanding of the Bible reflect the way we are living? Does what we know inform the way that we live? Is there a contrast from the way we live to the way believers live? If, if what we know from the study of scriptures informs our living, then our lives should be a direct contrast to what unbelievers hold to. You can see that contrast in big picture views, right? We look beyond just everybody here has struggled in life. But we look beyond the struggles that we face in this life to a greater life that Christ will, come, will bring when he returns. So we have a very big contrast as opposed to the unbelievers who think you just live and then you die. Right? No meaning. No nothing. Life has no point. But a Christian, there's a very important point that is being made here. So are we just, we're not just simply talking about the accumulation of biblical knowledge here. What we're talking about is biblical knowledge 
that leads to a contrasting form in the way that we live as opposed to the way unbelievers live. So what we know informs our life. It informs the way that we live. So does our knowledge and understanding of the Bible reflect Paul's teachings of a transformed life that leads to redemption? Here's the second question. Does the path we travel in life reflect Paul's teaching of a heavenly residence? Let's take a look at uh, uh, several verses. verses. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. Here's what Paul talks about. He says, For indeed this house... We groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, being weighed down, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who, ha- who prepared us for this very purpose Uh, is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, a down payment. Therefore, being always of good good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. His idea here is that Any Christian who has thought about this new life recognizes the shortcomings and the groanings that we have in this life, and we long for that life that Jesus brings. Uh, This transformation from mortality to immortality uh, centers on living that moves from this life to one of redemption. So as a result, Paul gives us some ideas that we need to think about here. Let's look at the first one, talking about living and groaning. Mortal life reflects one that groans regularly under the weight of sin while simultaneously longing for a new life. The Christian life is one that is guided by faith, that longs for a heavenly residence. In verse 7, the verb here for walking is used metaphorically Uh, as to how we are living, where he says we walk by faith. Uh, The term here is a present tense form. Peripateo is the term for walk. Walking in life, when he's using this in this context, is, is, is a metaphor about how we're living. Okay, but it's talking about walking continually or living continually. And the idea here is that our lives, while weighed down by sin, that it... It, it bur- we have this burden, and it's so great that we long for this life that Jesus brings. So, how are we living today? Let's take a look at some ideas here. Paul talks about how we live from a courageous perspective. Here's what he says. Paul teaches that Christian life is a courageous life that looks beyond the suffering of mortal life to a day when we are at home with our Lord. Does our life reflect one of courageous living that does not fear death, but rather looks intently at the new age to come? That means that while we live in this life and we're weighed down with the burden of sin, 
we look beyond the suffering of this life and the problems that we have and we look intently, meaning that's our focus. So while we have problems, we have struggles, we have these hurts, these pains, we look at that and focus on that life is to come. And that takes courage. Uh, we saw a, a really poor example of courage uh, in uh, Baptist life just a few weeks ago where they had a, a bill come forward in the state of Louisiana and the Southern Baptists and uh, all of the pro-life movements in Louisiana voted against this bill for abortion. You know why? Because it wasn't politically expedient at the time. They were worried that the vote in the state of Louisiana would affect our numbers in the House of Representatives in Washington. So the Speaker of the House, the new Speaker of the House, called up the Louisiana Baptist, the President of the Louisiana Baptist, and he got them to collapse. He got them to, to withdraw the bill. They said, so one week, one week he says, I wholly support this bill. A week later, he says, I'm not going to support it. That, when is it ever, when is it ever the right time to stand for Christ? If you stand for Christ, I'm telling you, you're not going to be a popular person. Amen. You're not. So Paul says it takes courage to do that. When people talk about Christianity, we have to be courageous. We have to look beyond whatever struggles, whatever sufferings we have in this life or could potentially have, and we have to look to the life that Jesus is talking about bringing us here. So he calls us to live a courageous life. So does our knowledge and understanding of the Bible reflect Paul's teaching of a transformed life that leads to redemption? Second question. Does the path that we travel in life reflect Paul's teachings of a heavenly residence? Are we focused on that life? Lastly, do our aspirations in life reflect Paul's teachings of accountability to God? I want to be real clear here. Uh, this is why I, I hammer at our associational meetings, pastors. We've got to have a solid understanding of what the scriptures say because that informs the way that we live. We've got to be courageous people so that we are focused and we are steadfast in our support for what God teaches, what Paul teaches. So we have to make sure that our beliefs actually reflect what the scriptures say. Let's take a look here at verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, we're going to talk about that term, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, repaid is what that means, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Christian life is not about living the way that we want to. The Christian life is a life of humility. It's not worrying about our status and whether we are important people, the influential people in life. It's about living a humble life that brings honor to God. Let's take a look at some details here. 
The verb here in verse 9 that the NASB translates as ambitions, it's a compound word. Look at this word. Philatimeomai is how you pronounce it. love and timeomai uh, means is from the Greek word timo which means honor uh, if you look in Paul's writings the, the name Timothy one who honors God. yeah one who honors God but this is so the idea here that Paul's trying to get across is that uh, the, in the context of this passage, philatimeomai means one who loves to honor God. Amen. This term, philatimeomai, is crucial for a life devoted to God. Let's take a look at some ideas drawn out of this, uh, these verses. First, uh, Paul teaches that our uh, aspirations, I think the NASB talked about our, uh, what did they call it? Uh, ambitions. But Paul teaches that our aspirations, our desires, whether in this life or the one to come, must be acceptable or pleasing to God. The reason that our aspirations must be acceptable to God is because one day we're going to stand before a holy God and give an account of our life. Every one of us. I'm going to have to do that. You're going to have to do that. However, God's giving of the Holy Spirit as a down payment reflects a positive outcome for believers on that day. So God, in his infinite wisdom, gives us the spirit, and he's saying, I know the decision, and I know the direction you're already going. And by virtue of the fact that you have my spirit dwelling in you, I'm expecting a positive outcome when you stand before me. So our aspirations cannot be self-centered. My aspirations cannot be, well, I want to get rich, or I want to have a sports car. My aspirations have to be a life that brings honor to God. So the Christian aspirations must be something like, I dedicate and I submit my life to our Lord, and that my efforts reflect and honor God. That's the kind of aspirations we have. But it's unfortunate because what we see more often than not in life is people who have aspirations that benefit themselves, right? I'm going to get rich. I want to become influential. I want to be able to tell people what to do. Had a preacher, had a student one time tell me that in seminary. I said, well, what do you think God is leading you, teaching or preaching or missionary? What? He goes, I think God wants me to be a pastor. I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, well, because I like telling people what to do. <laughs> I got news for you. You can tell people what to do. They're going to do what they want anyway, right? <laughs> my aspirations can't be to get rich. My aspirations have to bring honor to God. In other words, what Paul is teaching is that selfish ambition has no place in the Christian life. So how do we summarize this passage? How do we tie this passage up into a nutshell and apply it into our lives? Well, this sermon began with the staggering death rates that existed in the ancient world. And by the grace of God, modern medicine has greatly improved the quality of physical life. 
But humanity continues to be weighed down by our sins, and Christian believers groan and long to be clothed with the righteousness that Jesus will bring at his return. So being the merciful God that he is, our Lord encourages us today by giving us his Holy Spirit as a down payment to a far greater life that is to come. Therefore, we should aspire to live a life that allows us to one day to stand before him, look him in the eye, tell him that we love him, and present a life that has brought honor to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this day, and I thank you for Paul's writings here. And most of all, Father, I thank you for your son Jesus and what you have accomplished through his going to the cross. So, Father, as we live this life with this down payment of your spirit living inside us, we pray that you use this spirit to guide us, to inform the ways that we live. So at the end of our days, we stand before you and present a life well lived. And so that we might hear those wonderful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.